one day on the internet, two friends, Boop and Recky, found themselves a-browsing on the Boopla Games Wiki. They learned of every Boopla game in Boopla history, and Saverachat reported that, discussing them historically. Though Mario has bloody teeth and Sonic's fur is red, oh no! There's relevance and influence in Crash's but to Ted. Wow! So come with Rekt and move to laugh and learn in Bootleg Heaven. Press start to Super Bootleg Podcast 7! Welcome, welcome to Super Bootleg Podcast 7. This is a sort of preliminary pilot episode for our new podcast. We're going to be talking about all kinds of bootleg games, bootleg game histories, and the impact they've had, and sometimes just how silly they look. So, uh, as for introductions, I am Rekt D. I have been interested in and involved in bootlegs since childhood when my neighbors had a piglet plush that when squeezed would begin singing Alouetta and then emit a woman's scream. And uh, Moop is my co-host. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Moop? Hello, I'm Moop, and uh, I don't have as much experience in bootlegs other than, you know, the typical my parents would go to a flea market and, like, bring stuff home sometimes, you know, bootleg Pokemon cards and stuff like that. So I'm a bit more new to this than I'd say um, someone like you is. Okay. So I think it's an important point to establish that when we're talking about bootleg games here, we're not just talking about, like, Elsa Frozen Surgery 7 on the App Store. That's not a bootleg game. They actually licensed that. Didn't you hear that? Oh, Elsa Frozen Surgery. Yeah. I'm so happy for them. (laughs) Yeah, so we're not talking about, like, just fake copies of Pokemon Emerald and the Game Boy Advance. We're more talking bootleg original games and hacks that were sold and repackaged that actual real companies in other countries, such as Taiwan or China or sometimes even Japan, were formed to create. These aren't just some guy with a machine that's copying real merchandise and selling it as fake ones. These are original creations that have really strange histories. To get started with that, I figured it would be good to dedicate our pilot episode to talking about why these kinds of bootleg games came to be. So bootlegs, to begin with, are an interesting concept. They're not necessarily referring to a specific type of good by the term alone. In the early days, in the days of piracy actually being done by literal pirates and not people downloading files off the internet, booze would often be snuck through colonies that were heavily taxed, and the idea of smuggling alcohol continued into the centuries that followed. Most importantly, where the term of bootlegging originates from, the Civil War, where soldiers would sneak alcohol into their boots. The term sort of gained new notoriety when people started referring to it as sort of fake goods, fake merchandise, like Spongebob on Pikachu's head, or even just like a fake Gucci bag or something like that. So bootlegs in video games didn't really start when video games started, because in order to have a bootleg, you need to have a license. And for the first few generations of video games, licensing wasn't really required to release a game. For the Atari 2600, there is, I believe, nearly a thousand games in the library, many of them that are made in Taiwan, China, or countries like that. But they're not considered bootlegs because Atari didn't officially license out the rights to make games for their consoles. They're just games. There were a few 
quasi bootlegs in the arcade era, like Crazy Auto, which was an unofficial enhancement of Pac-Man, but Midway later bought it and turned it into Miss Pac-Man, so didn't really stay a bootleg. There's also Crazy Kong, which Nintendo initially commissioned as a cheaper Donkey Kong cabinet that could be distributed to other countries, but it became a bootleg when the company behind it started distributing it in America as well. But when it comes to completely unlicensed games, bootlegs actually didn't start until the NES Famicom era, since Nintendo were one of the first companies to both have a very successful console and require people to actually license the rights to make games for it. Which brings us to our bootleg spotlight of the day. We're going to be talking briefly in each episode about a particular bootleg game that has some relevance to the topic, and essentially how it plays, why it was created, what kind of impact it had. And the bootleg for today is Super Maruo. Maruo. Uh, Moop, have you ever played um, Super Mario Brothers? <laughs> have I ever played Super Mario Brothers? No, I've never heard of anything about Mario or his brother Luigi. Oh, wow. So you even know about his brother. To briefly sum up for those who may not have played Super Mario Brothers, even though it is a fairly popular video game. <laughs> so Super Mario Brothers is a game released for the NES and Famicom in 1985. And it was an incredibly trailblazing game because it was the first modern platformer. Featuring an Italian man. Featuring an Italian man. It was the first platformer that not only involved the character jumping on platforms, but having control of themselves at all times and also jumping on enemies. There were a few video games before it that had platforming in them, but most of them were automated or auto-scrolling. So Super Mario Brothers was huge. It was also one of the first console games to have a story behind it. A story that actually motivated you to play through the game because, of course, Princess Peach, who is Mario's girlfriend, associate, something, has been captured, and you as Mario need to save her from the tyrannical Turtle King, Bowser. Bowser. Also known as the Koopa King, which is sort of a play on words of Kappas, which are a Japanese turtle monster. Uh, when Super Mario Brothers came out, it sort of changed the world. And at the same time, it changed a small company in Japan's world because it gave them the opportunity to make what is widely recognized as the first bootleg game in history. It's also the first pornographic game for the Famicom. Ooh, spicy topic for the first episode, you think? Yeah, a little bit spicy, but... <laughs> a little bit spicy. It is technically the first bootleg game ever, so I can't think of much better to start with than the first one ever made. So Super Mario's bootleg, as I stated before, is named Super Maruo. Nobody knows why they called it Super Maruo. It's quite likely that they released it as that in order to get around any legal copyrights on Super Mario while still make it painfully obvious. Well, I mean, look how close the U is to the I on the keyboard. Oh, I think we just solved the mystery move. <laughs> So they typed the wrong letter and Super Maruo was born. Yeah, I'm just saying. That's probably what it was. <laughs> Either that or they were like, I gotta change one letter of this so that no one thinks that this is a bootleg, even though it definitely is. So yeah, the interesting thing about Super Maruo is when it was released in 1986, it was not released by a Chinese company or a Taiwanese company. It wasn't covered in weird smiley stickers or a strange shiny label. 
Well, I mean, it was a porn game. I hope it wasn't. It was released essentially the way a lot of Famicom games looked back then. If you look at early Nintendo releases like Donkey Kong and Donkey Kong Jr. or Hudson releases like Load Runner, the design is extremely similar. It's just a few lines, some beams, some text, and it looks pretty official, save for a little dip switch that is coming out of the U that nobody to this day knows exactly what does. So Super Maruo looks like a regular Famicom game, was published in Japan, and for all intents and purposes, does not resemble most bootlegs. And yet, it was the first ever bootleg because it was completely unlicensed by Nintendo, and they, upon discovering it, immediately took it to court and tried to take it down. Due to the content of the game being Mario, who has lost his mustache, possibly the first ever porn parody where a mustache is removed instead of added, Ooh. is attempting to catch a girl. The girl is possibly Princess Peach? Not definitely? But the idea is that while you are running around trying to catch this girl as Super Maruo, a dog is fiercely protecting her as she runs away and trying to keep you from having your way with her. I feel like this would be a lot better of a game if you could play as the dog instead of Maruo. <laughs> I, I have to agree. Just an entire game where you're playing as a dog trying to defend a woman from an awful person. From an awful Italian mustacheless Mario. <laughs> Italian mustacheless Mario. I'd also like to note that Mario's sprite in this game is the smaller Mario, not the big Mario. So he just looks like a little midget running around. Does he have a huge dick at least? is he clothed or like what are we talking here so uh in the first in the first quote-unquote level of super maruo both maruo and the girl are clothed Aww. however once you manage to get past the dog and touch the girl there is a scene where the girl's clothes get forcibly removed <laughs> and after that the second level plays out with both maruo and the girl with no clothes on. And? Are you going to tell me if he has a huge dick or not? And then it's up to you to catch the girl again. And when that happens, <laughs> one of four scenes will play out that imitates intercourse. The interesting thing is they do not actually show the two together. They just show uh, the girl with... A floating ghost toy being inserted. Oh, that actually happens in a lot of Japanese porn games. Like, you're just kind of like the girl is the main focal point and like the disembodied penis is the thing going in and out. <laughs> okay, so this is something I didn't know about and didn't need to know. Great, we're making progress already. Well, well I mean, like... That's a, that's, you never played one of those? Okay. No! Super Maruo is the only one I've played, and I've only played it because it's the first bootleg ever. Dude, you played it, and you played it without me? This sucks. We'll go and... Oh, no, I won't stream it. The stream will get removed. <laughs> it's also only a one-player game. I know, but, like, it could have been an experience. I wanted to see well, don't worry. Well, um, I'll send you the ROM. You can try it out. <laughs> that sounds awful. <laughs> so Super Maruo is a terrible game. That's all there is to it. 
there is no music. All there is is the sound of Mario running, which is just. <gasps> oh my god! You should compose music for this. <laughs> I don't want to do the soundtrack for a Nintendo porn game. Why not? You were so close. Like you already, you know, you have connections to a porn star. You can, you can do this. This is your next step. Okay, so as clarification for what was just brought up, because I guess this has to be a story now. When I was about 13 years old, someone reached out to me on Newgrounds.com because they'd seen my video game parody animations, which are all not very good. And they asked me if I could draw Scott Pilgrim-style sprites for their characters in a movie called Tetherball the Movie. It is obviously a parody of Dodgeball. However, the thing that made it stand out is that one of the lead characters was played by Ron Jeremy. So, I sent them some art. I don't know if they ever used it. It looked very bad. But there's a distinct possibility. Are you telling me you never watched the movie? I've never watched the movie. There's a distinct possibility that some terrible 13-year-old's art who doesn't know how to draw is in a movie with Ron Jeremy, one of the most famous porn stars. Well, I mean, I know what, I know what we're doing later. We're watching that movie. <laughs> it looks really awful. Not to sway too far off topic, but... I remember watching the trailer, and one of the lead comments was the director's mother complaining about how many shots they showed of breasts. I sure don't like it when my son is surrounded by breasts. So, Super Maruo... <laughs> Super Maruo ended up selling all of, I believe, seven copies before it was taken off store shelves. It was sold for 6,800 yen, which is about $87 today. Ooh, they made quite a profit. You can play this game for about four minutes before you've seen everything in it. So people that bought Super Maruo instead of Super Mario were probably pretty disappointed. <laughs> probably. Hopefully the people that bought Super Maruo were pretty disappointed. Can you imagine being a guy that just bought this game and all your friends are talking about Super Mario and you're like, yeah, the game's great. And they come over and they want to play it with you, want to do a little, uh mario co-op and they see that the game that you really have is this piece of shit and they're just like this is the one you like what is this that's the things i don't think about sometimes that there's got to be one kid that almost got into video games but then bought super maruo instead of super mario by accident <laughs> and their life was ruined forever i think that's the saddest thing that could ever exist you know they start young it's pretty possible that somewhere out there, someone has a savior dog kink. Either that or, you know, he's probably on DeviantArt asking for fetish art of a dog protecting a naked woman. This game did not sell well, and due to that, not many copies remained. It was actually not until a few years ago that someone finally tracked down a copy and dumped it to preserve it online. And when the auction ended, they paid a total of $6,452 for the cartridge. I mean, I would think about it. I mean, I shouldn't, I shouldn't think about it, but if I was in that position where, you know, my options are, do, do I spend $6,000 or do I get to see Mario's big cock and Peach's big tits? 
it's a conundrum. Technically, you would have to spend $6,000 in order to see them. I know, but, you know, it's it's a conundrum because you really got to weigh the pros and cons. Because the cons is that you spend a lot of money, but the pros is that you get to see Mario have sex with Princess Peach. Well, here's the thing. It's not Mario. It's Mario. He's just using a porn star name. His porn star name is Maruo. He shaved his mustache. <laughs> The worst porn star name I have ever heard. That's my new game theory. Shut up. That's like <laughs> you became a porn star by shaving yourself bald and replacing one letter in your name. So it was like, <laughs> guys, it's it's MIP. Yeah, why not? <laughs> you really think Mario's going to put that much effort into concealing himself? So... Nobody knows for sure whether Nintendo took these guys down, but considering they were in Japan and were probably trackable, it's quite possible they did. Uh, the company that made Super Maruo is named Showa Susho. I went ahead and did a little research on them in advance. They have made Super Maruo, and that is the only game they have ever made. And what a game. Well, once you make that game, really, where else can you go? You've already made the perfect game. I think that about sums up Super Maruo, it was the perfect game, and therefore it inspired many to try and copy it, and therefore the entire bootleg market was born. Actually, no, it just happened, and it made people realize that if they were going to make an unlicensed game for Nintendo, they actually had to be a little smart about it. What ended up happening, getting back on our main topic, is bootleg games were not released very much in Japan, because Nintendo was right there and they could find you, just like they probably found Super Maruo. So bootleg game companies were born in other countries like China and Taiwan, sometimes even America, where they focused on markets where Nintendo sort of turned a blind eye or they weren't really thinking about what kind of money they could make there. Russia is a big one. If you'd like to learn more about Russian bootleg culture in particular, I highly recommend the channel Kinaman88 which has a documentary called The Grey Elephant's Curse that goes into great detail about it. They sold games in China, um, and they would either directly copy a game that was released and change up a sprite to make it appear more interesting, like putting Chip and Dale on top of Commandos in a war, or um, Darkwing Duck on top of the Contra guy. Or they would make bootleg original games, which were meant to trick people into thinking they were getting a different game, or just that a different type of game had been officially released that they'd been looking forward to. This would end up making a lot of different titled games in a series that did not have that many entries. There are over 20 bootleg Mario games for the NES in sequential order, and I don't know who was keeping count, but... Every single one has a unique number. There's like, there's not two Super Mario 13s or Super Mario 7s or anything like that. Someone in this wide web of strange bootlegging said, all right, we need to make sure that when we attach a random number to the end of our Mario game, it's not the same random number that someone else has attached. 
It's supposed to be in chronological order. It's Mario's story. All they did was they got a camera and they recorded him. Obviously, this led to a lot of other games being hacked because they couldn't make enough Mario games originally to keep up with these huge numbers. So you'll have things like the infamous Granddad 7, which is actually a hack of the Flintstones. Many Japanese games were hacked, such as Kid Nicky 2, I believe, became Mario 13. Adventure Island became Mario... Six, I think. And the interesting thing about uh, being confused, I'm going to um, take a little vignette from Kinemon's Curse of the Grey Elephant here, Dendy Chronicles series. When Super Mario 20 came out, it was a hack of Joe and Mac, and the Russian TV show Video S. Dendy reviewed it in such a way that they praised its gameplay and you know, pretty much said, you know, this is a fantastic game. But then when Joe and Mac actually got released in the country, the TV show slammed it as a blatant copy of Super Mario 20. Maybe it was. You don't know. The world may never know. Maybe it's an Aladdin Peach and the Cobbler situation. Uh, you mean, uh, <laughs> Peach and the Cobbler? <laughs> you mean Princess and the Cobbler? <laughs> I was thinking of Princess Peach, I'm sorry. It's okay. That's the bootleg of Princess and the Cobbler. You just made an amazing movie of someone just eating a peach cobbler for 70 minutes. That's true. I've never had peach cobbler before. I have. It's basically just a really messy peach pie. So it's a bootleg peach pie. Oh my god. You heard it here first on Super Bootleg Podcast 7, everybody. Peach cobbler is just bootleg peach pie. I'm gonna kill you. So NES bootlegs continued into the mid-late 90s because so many people had bootleg NES consoles at the time. Companies would go for, as I said, countries where Nintendo products were not sold. This was mainly due to either not wanting to stock it or like Cold War porting limitations, things like that. As long as NESs and Famicoms were being sold as other in other countries under whatever name they're being sold in, sometimes it was Dendi, sometimes it was um, Subor, sometimes it was just amazing game adventure, a bunch of loud, strange words. Really funny game, haha. <laughs> the names were unimportant. The important thing is that they were Nintendos. Some bootleg games actually had marketing campaigns inside them. International Cricket for the Famicom contains advertisements for several bootleg Nesses with the tagline, Own a One and Have a Fun, which is currently my desktop background. <laughs> Just one. With NES bootlegs already in high population, obviously as um, later consoles such as the Sega Genesis and Super Nintendo came out, there were more bootlegs on them as well, but there were nowhere near as many as there were on the NES because more advanced hardware is more difficult to code for, more difficult to circumvent any piracy for. So while there are a fair few Genesis bootlegs, Super Nintendo bootlegs, things like that, there are nowhere near as many as there were on the original Game Boy, which is where the focus of most bootleg preservation history is today. As when the Game Boy came out, Nintendo had begun to tout a brand new system of, of being able to detect fakes wherein the system itself wasn't really any better at locking out piracy than the NES was. But at the beginning of the game, in order for it to start, you would need the Nintendo logo to scroll all the way down to the middle of the screen and play a little jingle. And the Nintendo logo was copyrighted. 
So anyone that made a fake game and used the Nintendo logo, without going into the details of the game itself, Nintendo could immediately take down for using their copyrighted logo in their game. Even if they didn't want the logo, they needed the logo there for it to boot. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty smart, right? Yeah. So this goes into a little side story wherein the company Argonaut Software, as detailed in an interview with them about the Star Fox franchise, decided they would impress Nintendo by going to a conference that they were at and quite literally shoving a Game Boy in their faces that booted up to an Argonaut logo instead of a Game Boy one, showing that they already outsmarted the big thing Nintendo was just talking about. (laughs) So obviously word of this got back to China and Taiwan and everywhere where bootleg games are made, and they decided, okay, so this is what we need to do. The Game Boy logo was copyrighted, so we need to make sure we don't use it in our products. So that could go as simple as Game Boy bootleg cartridges, for the most part, not saying Game Boy or Game Boy Color on them. The most popular replacement was Game. Gang Boy. Not even Game Boy, just Game. No, I want Gang Boy. Was there ever a Gang Boy? I wish. A Gang Boy would be pretty incredible. It's just like, you can tell it's bootleg, but also there's a tinge of, like, mafia to it. (laughs) There's ferocity. There's ferocity to it. Like, you you put it in, and you get a picture of your local Don. (laughs) And he says, enjoy this game I've made for you. You better not tell anybody that I made it. (laughs) (laughs) And they spend almost all of the cartridge space... And it's a, and it's of Mario because he's Italian. Get it? Wow. <sighs> of course, of course, because Mario's Italian. That's so funny. <laughs> That's so relevant. Sometimes the bootlegs would be written as game. Sometimes it would be game color. Gay. A very popular one was Game USA Advance. A lot of bootlegs really uh, harp on that patriotism. Because they want you to know that it is American, even though it's about as far from American as it can be. My personal favorite from my collection, my very small collection of bootleg Game Boy games, is uh, Pocket Monsters Go Go, which is a hack of the Smurfs for the Game Boy Color. They predicted Pokemon Go. Pretty good. Uh, Much like Pokemon Go, at the beginning of the game, Meowth appears and sings My Heart Will Go On, but replaces all the lyrics with hope about hate and fear. Why does he do that? Because... Meowth is a hateful, fearful Pokemon. That's literally his Pokedex entry. (laughs) Is it actually? I hope so. That'd be a really good Pokedex entry. So the game cartridge for Pocket Monsters Go 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 that I have, and one of the more popular ones, is not written as game, or game color, or even game boy. It is game Amy. You can only play... Amy on this Game Boy. It's the only one that's allowed. You just you try to play you try to play Sonic or Tails. Well they were trying to diversify it, so you know it's not a Game Boy anymore. Now it, it now it has a girl's name, so it's a game girl. Ah, that's probably what it is. They were trying to think of a girl's name and they just thought of Amy, so they printed it on. Yeah, they were like, that's a that's a video game character. People like that. Yeah. Game Amy. That's her actual name. <laughs> It's her full name. The Sonic franchise, Game Amy. So all of these different cartridges would come out with fake names attached to the top, fake names attached to them. And because it was figured out so quickly, more and more bootleg games were made for Game Boy than any other console. 
even in the early days. Obviously, most Game Boy bootlegs were made during the Pokemon craze because Pokemon was huge and it took over the world and it was one of the hugest money-making opportunities bootleg companies ever had. But even before that, uh, there were some Game Boy wannabe consoles such as the Watara Supervision, also known as the Mega Duck in the UK, that were released with exclusively bootleg Game Boy libraries. One of the main companies that developed games for them was named Sachen in China. There were also a company that developed bootleg NES games that were released by Color Dreams in America. And essentially, when Game Boy piracy became more popular, they just took all of their Supervision Mega Duck games and ported them over to the Game Boy, and it was already almost identical hardware, so it was not a lot of work. But after Pokemon came out, that's when the bootleg started to explode. You know, Pokemon Adventure, Poke- Pocket Monsters Go Go Go, Pikachu's Nightmare. <laughs> Pikachu's Nightmare, is that a Bart's Nightmare ripoff? I wish. It's actually the exact same game as Pocket Monsters Go Go Go, except instead of Pikachu being so fat that he slows down the game, he is extremely skinny, and whenever he's standing still, Aww. he makes a face like he just farted and is really scared for anyone to find out. Bring back Fat Pikachu. Fat Pikachu is a legend that has been lost to time. One day we will find him again. So, of course, with Pokemon being super popular, there's also the cases of trying to beat the official release to the market, which is another type of bootleg. Not always the most interesting, but one that's made a lot of waves on the internet in particular is Pokemon Vietnamese Crystal, which has... Oh, everyone loves that one. Crystal was my first Pokemon game, too. Well, was your first Pokemon game Pokemon Crystal or Pokemon Vietnamese Crystal? I wish it was Pokemon Vietnamese Crystal, but unfortunately, I'm not Vietnamese, I'm Chinese. So I didn't have anyone to give me the Vietnamese version. So essentially, um, a little backstory for Vietnamese Crystal is that it was released before the U.S. localization of Pokemon Crystal. The idea was that Pokemon Crystal was already selling a lot in Japan, so bootleggers figured if we can make it be in English before they can, we can make a lot of money with people that are desperate to play the new Pokemon. It was in Japanese. Vietnamese Crystal is called Vietnamese because obviously in Vietnam. So they ran it through a translator to make it their language, and then they ran it through a translator to make it English. So that's why the translation became so twisted and ridiculous. It wasn't just a straight translation from Japanese to English. It was, they had to hire a guy to translate it from Japanese, and then they had to hire a guy to translate it into English. So this releases, there wasn't a lot of other attempts of localizing games before they came out outside of that one, but it was one of the big ones. The last console that ended up having bootlegs of this nature on them because they generally skip 3D hardware. It was way too much work to make games for the Nintendo 64 or PlayStation or GameCube or PS2 or Dreamcast or Saturn because coding in 3D was a much bigger work schedule than making like little crappy Game Boy games. So that's also why the Game Boy market did very well as the console was around for a long time and it was still as easy to make games for as it was to make for the NES, which is where bootleg games started. So the last console to have bootleg original games, as the ones discussed before, was the Game Boy Advance, and really only in the early days. Maybe the first couple of years that it was out, because after the Pokemon Game Boy Advance games hit really big, most bootlegs turned to be 
copies of those Pokemon Game Boy Advance games to the point where if you try to buy a Game Boy Advance Pokemon game nowadays, you kind of have to open it up and see if it's real or not to know if you're getting a real one because the bootlegs were so widespread. That's the point where um, we generally stop talking about bootleg history because at that point, production was just making copies or using a NES emulator and compiling a bunch of ROMs onto a Game Boy Advance cartridge and there's less original creations to be found. A lot of the companies that created the bootleg games were shut down or just ceased production. And that's sort of what the end of the era was. But just because the big heyday of producing bootlegs were over doesn't mean that new ones didn't come out. There are still new bootleg games that release every year on those older consoles and come in countries that still sell them. Sometimes even in America because there's always going to be like third-party knockoffs that are sold on shelves. And due to that, and due to the fact that so many bootleg games came out between the period of the late 80s and the early 2000s, there is a very dedicated community that attempts to preserve these games. I am actually part of that community, Pirated Game Central. It's a forum where people attempt to track the history of bootlegs, dump the ROMs for preservation, take pictures of the boxes for screenshots, even try to preserve the manuals sometimes, which is something I highly applaud and I wish that people would do more. We're just sort of all come together with a mutual love of these creations and try to, you know, keep them around. Try to have the games playable by anyone that might be curious enough to see what Pokemon Adventure on the Game Boy or Sonic Adventure 7 play like. People that want to experience Meowth singing about his hate and fear to the tune of My Heart Will Go On. He's a real Canadian. He died on the Titanic. <laughs> like all people in Canada. Yes. That's why Celine Dion sang the song, because everyone on that Titanic was Canadian. Of course they were. <laughs> of course they were, like... Like, you know, back in America, back in those days, we gathered up all the Canadians we could and put them on a boat, and that's the conspiracy. We sunk it because we wanted to kill all of the Canadians. And yet we failed. <laughs> you sure did. <laughs> there are um, a few other websites that aim to preserve these games. The Bootleg Games Wiki is essentially an extension of Pirated Games Central that is just a straight information source on these releases, company names, things like that. Pirated Games Museum is a personal favorite of mine, which is an entire wiki that simply exists to try and preserve as much box art and cartridge art of these bootlegs as they can, which is often one of the most amusing parts. Take Super Simpson 4 for the NES. The game itself, it's, it's just Super Mario Brothers, right? It's just Bart in Super Mario Brothers. Just Bart. However, the cover is a very crudely drawn marker sketch of Bart Simpson kicking Krusty the Clown in the face with a dislocated ankle with a roller skate on his foot, while Krusty the Clown is also a witch flying across the sky on a broom. That sounds fun, dude. I'd do that. Oh, yeah, I wish I wish the game was like that. I wish that Super Simpson 4 actually involved you running around as Bart Simpson, kicking a witch in the face. <gasps> Bart! Kicking a witch in her Krusty the Clown face. 
There's also a few individual sites that are devoted to just hosting the ROM dumps. I believe CAH4E3 is a dumper that does a lot of newly discovered Famicom bootlegs. And Handheld Underground, which is abbreviated as HHUG.me, which, as I know, one of the people behind it is an intentional pun of hug me, is a site that dumps mostly Game Boy games and continues to update even to this day. So, uh, in summary, the bootleg game craze, as it were, happened for about 20 years. All kinds of strange games came out of it in this huge fusion of pop culture and marketing. And we're the people that sort of try to pick up the pieces and remember it for what it was. That's a pretty noble effort, I think. I mean, obviously, we are not condoning people to illegally rip off characters and sell their merchandise because there's plenty of that out there, and it's usually not great when you think you're getting something that you've wanted for a long time that you spent a lot of money for and you find out it's a fake. But we're sort of devoted to the fakes that tried so hard to be seen as real, but very clearly were not. The uncanny valley effect. The uncanny valley effect. That's what that's what bootleg preservation in video games is all about. And to segue into our little closing topic here, on Super Bootleg Podcast 7, while we do intend to talk primarily about bootleg game history and the time span we've discussed, we would also like to take a little bit of time to touch on other bootlegs outside of video gaming throughout time. For our first episode, where better to start than one of the most widespread bootleg cultures, bootleg Bart shirts. Sounds fun. I do love me some good bootleg Bart shirts. So these are shirts that were not just like Bart, to paraphrase a certain um, popular YouTuber podcaster. Haha, <laughs> funny! Bootleg Bart shirts were not made at all to resemble official Simpsons merchandise. Very often they would make Bart black. Very often they would make uh, Bart a- What do you mean make him black? He's always been black. But that's just a theory. It's not a theory, he's just black. Bart is yellow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but yellow in that show is a visual representation of black. Then why are there also black people who just have- They're not black, they're- Burnt. I don't know. Fuck you. (laughs) You're saying Carl from The Simpsons is just a burn victim? Yeah. (laughs) Where did this come from? I don't know. He ruins my theory about Bart being black, so he has to go somewhere. So you burned him alive? Yeah. (sighs) There's a lot of better things you can do to people for ruining your Bart theories than burn them alive, you know? Like give them a shirt. With Black Bart on it. Exactly. So bootleg Bart shirts, like most bootleg merchandise, exploded in popularity because their source material exploded in popularity. The Simpsons was one of the most hugely impactful TV shows in history, if not the most impactful in history. And during its early years, everyone was obsessed with Bart. That's why you had songs like Do the Bart Man that were actually written by Michael Jackson and had like huge music videos. You got calls from the local sociology church from Bart. (laughs) Due to that huge impact, there were a lot of knockoffs. And most Simpsons knockoffs veered more closely towards the actual Simpsons. But bootleg Bart shirts sort of became their own thing. 
People that bought bootleg Bart shirts knew they weren't getting official Simpsons merchandise because most of them had absurd premises like Air Bart, which was Bart Simpson's face on a popular basketball player, or um, people commenting on political issues in distant countries. Some of the most prominent bootleg Bart shirts were of Jamaican Barts and Bob Marley Barts. Ooh. Of course, you gotta have Bob Marley in there. There are a lot of Bart Marleys. So these would be shirts of bootleg Bart that portrayed him as a black person that was either involved in another country's affairs or struggles. So you'd have you'd have some bootleg Bart shirts that would say, it's a black thing you don't understand. or um... <laughs> Bart understands, because he's black. Or uh, even, like, some simple ones like Jamaica No Problem. You must say it. I've already said it. I know, but you have to. You must say it. You must say Jamaica No Problem. I've already said Jamaica No Problem. <laughs> Are you going to do one? <laughs> well, no, I can't. <laughs> sound right. It's okay. I'm here. I'm Jamaica. No! I'll sound really bad. Give you a pass. <laughs> So it's just it's just come down to this, huh? My bootleg podcast <laughs> is a test of my voice acting skills. Are you going to be Bob Marley? Are you going to be Black Bart? <laughs> All right, here comes my most efforted Jamaica no problem. Jamaica no problem. That's okay. That's not too bad. I mean, it's not a Jamaican accent. <laughs> One day I'll learn. I'll study enough Maccabee videos to actually sound the part. I need to listen exclusively to my grandmother for 50 hours. <laughs> uh, bootleg Bart shirts often featured you know, political turmoil or discussions of uh, racial problems. But also sometimes they were just ridiculous. One of my uh, personal favorites is one that I, to this day, have not been able to find a picture of. Again, I hope I can one day that is a black bart as an electricity based superhero similar to static shock who is just called electricity man with the catchphrase i love electricity well yeah that's really popular with a lot of black superheroes the electricity power i was um was uh cage that as well or was he just strength cage i don't know anything about superheroes you're asking the wrong person <laughs> righty well i don't know anything about them either so there you go all I know is about black people. No, wait, no, I don't even know it was Cage. It was Power Man. And I only know about Power Man because he was in a um, comic that my school gave out about the dangers of smoking, where the Marvel superheroes faced off against Smokescreen, a villain that could shoot cigarette smoke out of his hands. That sounds like a Captain Planet villain. <laughs> it absolutely was a rejected Captain Planet villain. There's no doubt in my mind. Outside of the, you know, more impactful bootleg bar shirts, there was some that were simply trying to be official merchandise and failed in amusing ways. My favorite of those being a shirt of Bart simply stating his famous catchphrase, Don't have a box, new! So due to the more impactful side of them, there is an entire website devoted to the preservation and discovery of bootleg Bart shirts. It is bootlegbart.com if you'd like to visit to see all kinds of ridiculous bootleg Bart shirts. Um, they were, you know, 
They're sold for a long enough time that now it's almost considered an art movement. And to this day, people make bootleg Bart shirts just out of the expression and desire to make something nostalgic and strange. So, uh, I believe that is the full extent of our topics for this episode of Super Bootleg Podcast 7. I'd like to thank you all for uh, listening. It's not watching, listening. I'd like to thank you all for listening, and uh, be sure to look forward to new episodes where we'll go into more detail um, on some of the eras we've touched, some of the games we talked about, um, such as Pocket Monsters Go 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 and um, the others. The porn game. And uh, generally just completely go off topic and talk about weird shit. I like that. Like how I was almost in a Ron Jeremy movie. <laughs> I still can't believe you haven't seen that. I've not seen it. Maybe one day I will. I mean, here's the thing. It was technically on topic because it was a bootleg of Dodgeball. Yeah, see? So it all comes full circle. All right. Um, like to give a shout out to Lunar Light Network for being our podcast host. Be sure to check out their other shows such as Snub Dub, Tin Pan Diddly Doo, The Good Boys Girls, Badvertising, and many others. Thank you for watching, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Lunar Light Studio. Pretty, witty, and gay.